just people, sinners, saved by grace. If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, and I want to, I want to give you a fair warning because the message tonight is a warning from heaven. And as I've shared with you before, anytime God repeats Himself, it is a really good thing to listen. And when he repeats himself and the second time is stronger than the first, it's a really, really, really good time to listen. I shared with you when we were in chapter 6, one of the other uh, passages, very difficult passages here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, We now have come to the other passage as we pick up uh, in the 26th verse tonight in Hebrews chapter 10. Um, What remains of this chapter is probably, in my opinion, the hardest passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. So get ready. I'm just forewarning you. Uh, it, it gives in great detail uh, what happens when someone who's been enlightened, when someone who happens to have uh, received of the goodness of the Lord, uh, willingly spits on that grace. And it's not a pretty picture. I shared with you before, I'll share with you again before we get started. It does not matter whether you believe this passage of Scripture is speaking to Christians or non-Christians because the end results the same. So whether you happen to be on the side, as I am, that I believe that it is possible, though extremely rare, In very extreme cases, it is possible, and Scripture leaves the door open, for someone who has tasted the heavenly gift, in this case has received the good word, and and had that go into their life, and it's very clear that he's talking to Christians, whether you believe that that is speaking to someone who is saved, and they have forfeited their salvation, or someone who has never come to faith in Christ, the result is is the same. So when we look at this passage of Scripture tonight, we're going to pick up in verse 26, it deals with a different issue. And I want you to notice this issue very carefully. And I'm going to dissect this first verse very carefully, and it will probably take half of our time tonight. The reason being, notice what it says For if we sin willfully, notice it says we. Who is the letter written to? Christians. And it uses a very, very obscure Greek word that causes us to believe these people were saved. So if we sin willfully, could it possibly be talking about just any old sin? The answer to that, I believe, is absolutely not. Could it be talking about arbitrary sin? I believe absolutely not. Because the word that's translated here, willfully, means to forfeit lordship. Willingly, in this case, means that you had a king and you changed kings. And so it's very important for you to understand the context of this passage. And so as we look at it, it is here, as I shared with you when we were in chapter 6, as a warning. It's not intended to be enforced upon anyone. 
It's not God's desire that anyone willfully turn their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is perfectly possible that no matter where you've come from and no matter what you've done, that God's grace is absolutely sufficient to see you home. You do have to abide, though. Scripture never divests the actions of the believer from the doctrine of the believer. So if you believe it, you're supposed to do it. And you always have a problem when you don't. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture tonight, it's not to take away anyone's security. It's not to cause you to lack assurance or any of those kind of things. But it may well be for this reason. How many of you, and I do want you to raise your hands, have ever had to talk to somebody who's in willing disregard for God's Word? Why do you think this passage is here? Because there are times that people do need a hammer. They, they don't need a little feather pillow and just, oh, well, don't do that anymore. They need a hammer. They need it right on the tip of their finger while it's sitting on an anvil. And it hurts bad, okay? There are times when it's very necessary. Now let me tell you, are not those things also very rare? Those, those people that come into your life in that circumstance are largely very rare. So if you're here tonight and you're a believer, which I believe is all of you, then there are going to be times when you're going to need this passage because you're going to have somebody in your life who's going to say, you know what, you can be a homosexual and be saved. Not so far as Scripture says. And this passage says, if you willingly sin, if you completely disregard the grace of the Lord, if you spit on the cross of Christ, you are in deep trouble. So you can look at that person and say, not because I hate you, but because I love you, thus says the Lord. Not a passage you drag out in everyday conversation. It's not the one that when your children chewed gum and stuck it on a picture in the hallway or something, it's not... Well, you know, if you willingly sin. So, hear it in context. And I pray that the Lord will use it for each of us. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us through His Word. Father God, as we pour ourselves out so that You might be poured in, as we open our ears to hear You, our minds to receive Your instruction, Lord, our hearts laid bare so that we wouldn't think this is just simply for somebody else. But God, that you'd speak to us as your people. Encourage us, strengthen us. Lord, take your word now and and impart it to us, Lord, as truth. Have, Have us with that sanctified boldness in this world, Lord, to confront things that are contrary to your word. Lord, it's the problem with our country. The church has fallen asleep. And people are afraid to say, thus says the Lord. Give us that conviction. Give us that boldness. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received, circle that word, received 
the knowledge of the truth. It is very clear to me from the context that this passage is written to Christians. It's written about someone who has received, and received in this case means to have taken in just as you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It is the exact same word. We have received the knowledge of the truth. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, for some people, that instantaneously causes their skin to begin to crawl. For other people, not so much. I think both have some value. Verse 27, it says, But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Two verses that when you put them together are about as harsh a warning as you will find anywhere in Scripture and certainly the harshest one in the New Testament. There is nothing that compares to these two verses. You remember back in chapter 6, it said there in verses 4 through 6, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, if they fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God. Very much the same context. Does not matter which way you want to look at this. I happen to lean towards the side that in very rare cases. This, in fact, does mean Christians who have walked away from the Lord. I think that it most often pertains to people who are not saved. And I think it is best to keep both in view. I do believe that when you look at the context of it, it becomes extremely clear who's being talked to. And I believe that that warning must be there for a reason. And so... What does it mean there's no forgiveness for deliberate sin? Because here's the way we need to look at this. You and I as Christians, there's not a single person in this room who I am guessing has not sinned today. Just a guess. Take God's standards, you hold them up there, hmm, didn't quite make that. May not be flagrant may not be open and rebellious, but none of us have fully lived up to the character of Christ. So is it talking about deliberate sin in the sense that you knew about it and did it? I say to you, it can't possibly mean that. It's not talking about someone who just simply has understanding that, hey, I'm going to say this, I'm going to do this, and I know it's sin. And here's why. That's everybody. Because most people sin willingly. But notice it doesn't say willingly, it says willfully. It says as in lordship, as in I'm not hearing from the Holy Spirit, I no longer care what God thinks. Matter of fact, I not only don't care what God thinks, I'm going to do the opposite of what I think God thinks. It is hugely different than someone who plans to sin. Because let's face it, many of us do that from time to time. It isn't a long, exhaustive plan. You probably don't make a list. But I can guarantee you that most of us have some issues in our lives 
And I've talked to an awful lot of people, and I've yet to meet somebody who said, no, I never do that, that hasn't planned to maybe be snide, mean, and ornery with somebody. That's sin, and you planned it. That hasn't told a lie knowing that it was a lie. You planned that. That's willful. But did you change lordship? Or did you change, did you just cave into your flesh? There's a huge difference between those two things. And you need to keep it in view. At times we recognize that uh, we plan our sins somewhat carefully. You know, I deal with kids all the time. I can tell you they plan their sin very carefully. Uh, We had a situation last week at camp. During orientation, one of the things that I tell the kids is we are not going to have practical jokes this weekend. And I usually give them a whole bunch of examples of what not to do. And they laugh hilariously as a general rule. No toilet paper mummies. You will not shave off half of your friend's hair while he's asleep. You'll not superglue his face to his pillow. None of those things will you do. Okay? (laughs) Don't even think about it. So what happens come Sunday morning? The entire kitchen in the camp is trashed. Whole thing. Super glue on the toilet seats that someone sat on, by the way. Mm-hmm. Not fun. They planned very carefully their sin. Is every one of those kids going to hell? I kind of doubt it. I'm pretty confident that's not what the Lord's talking about here. He's not talking about just simple emphasis on doing something you know that God isn't pleased with. It's not that simple. And I'm beating this horse to death so that you do not get the impression that if you simply think about sin and go do it, that this is you. Because chances are most of you would walk around with utter unassurance of your salvation if that were the case. You'd be wondering, I'm going to hell for sure. How how many people have planned to, you know, tell some off-color joke? I mean, you sit there and think about it. You have to do that in order to regurgitate it. Can't possibly. There is no way it means that. The other thing that you might think about is, is this making a distinction? Because in the Old Testament, uh, Numbers chapter 15 is, is one of those passages that you can look at in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant and realize there were an awful lot of sins that you got put to death for. Uh, it was not good. I mean, to be a Jew, and remember this is written to Hebrews, Maybe some of those Hebrews were thinking, well, you know, if we go back to the law, here's what it says. Numbers 15, verses 22 to 29, verse 22 says, but anyone who sins defiantly, that person must be cut off from his people. That's a real nice way way of saying, kill him. Defiant sin could get you killed. It goes on to say, and this is the crazy part, it gives the example of someone who gathers wood on the Sabbath. Now, presumably, I'm thinking if someone goes out and gathers wood on the Sabbath, it's probably because he doesn't have any wood. He was lazy or whatever and went out, and so his, his tent is cold or doesn't have any wood to cook his 
food on, and so he goes and gathers something. You realize that the Old Testament declared that a person who gathered wood on the Sabbath was to be put to death? It was a death sentence. So I'm guessing the New Covenant, as we saw, erased that. Amen? It's been replaced. So it's not talking about just doing things that you know are wrong. It can't possibly mean that. Lock that into your head. This is talking about something very different. A pervasively deep-seated, rooted practice of ignoring the Holy Spirit in your life, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and it is something that overtakes your entire being. It is not simply you sinned willingly. It is the willful sinning. You've switched masters. You've switched lords. You are now on another track. You do not care what the Bible says. You don't care what other Christians say. You don't care what the Lord says. It's that group of folks. Lock that in. You see, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Every one of us has turned unto his own way. There is none righteous, not one, including those of us who've named the name of the Lord in a practical sense. We're positionally in Christ seen as righteous, but we ourselves still sinners, saved by grace, still to some degree actively sinning. I I have yet to meet a person walking this earth who names the name of Christ who has ever told me they're sinless. Not one. I've had a couple of kids try and convince me, but not anybody that has a brain in their head. <laughs> had a neighbor boy that tried to tell me that he could live a perfectly sinless life, and I told him the fact that he thought that was pride and that was sin. <laughs> Pretty much took care of it. But what about the person who hardens his conscience? What about the person who no longer wants to hear from the Spirit? What about the person who's believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that belief is a willful action on your part, and that person turns their back on the Lord, and with everything within them says, I'm going the other way. I think Scripture at least leaves the door open. For us to ponder that is one of the most difficult things that we can ever think on as far as our Christian walk. And I can tell you, I have met people that I believe that this is the case. None of us will know for sure until we get to heaven. I say to you again, why would anyone ever want to make that choice? Because it's real simple. You don't have to. And this passage says the only way you can is to willfully deny the Lord. It becomes a function of who you are. And so as the Lord repeats these things, I believe it is best that we listen. And I want want to remind you, there is no other name under heaven. Remember in our study in the book of Acts there in chapter 4, there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. So to deny Jesus put you in a really, really, really bad situation. So where do you think people are? And again, does it really matter if they were saved and forfeited their salvation or they were not saved? 
where do you think it puts people to deny Jesus Christ as Lord? It's pretty clear from this passage, it's not good. It's fiery indignation. That's another way of saying hell awaits. This is hellfire and brimstone stuff here. This is, this is not fluffy. This is not nice. This is not whipped cream with cherry on top. This is turn or burn. This is fry and die. This is not good. Someone who treats Christ in that way, in essence, is subjecting the Lord to public disgrace. If you are God and you gave your only begotten son to die for the sins of the world and he was already beaten, he was already beat with the rod, he was already crucified, crown of thorns on his head, he was mocked, spit on, his beard plucked out, castigated, ridiculed, and mocked. If you were God and that had already happened, How do you think you would feel if someone who received that gift decided to make sure it needed to be done again? Probably not good. I'm thinking that what I would imagine God's processes of thought would be is enough's enough. If it wasn't good enough the first time, it won't be good enough the tenth time. And so it really appears that this is... uh, at absolutely conscious rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 27 in the New Living Translation, there will be nothing to look forward to but the terrible expectation of God's judgment and raging fire that will consume his enemies. So the person who willingly sins, the person who denies the things of God, the person who says, I don't want it, pretty clear what their end is. So when Scripture declares that there's exactly two roads and one leads to heaven and one leads to hell, for those people who sometimes are tempted to believe they can mess with sin, and again, this is why we need to be strong on sin, folks, because I can't tell you where your breaking point is. I can't tell you how much sin you can endure before your heart becomes hardened. I can't tell you how much sin you can mess with before ultimately it begins to turn your heart against the Lord. This is why Christians who sin are in huge trouble. And it doesn't matter how much, because it has a cumulative effect on it, on us. And when you get to that place to where you turn the corner, which I have personally seen people do, that person no longer cares that God's Word says, you're, you're to love your wife, You're not to divorce her. And that person looks and says, I don't care. And I'm leaving. I can't tell you what has happened in their heart. But I know what Scripture says. It says that person's in a very dangerous place. And if I were looking to be certain with my Maker, who is God... I would turn from that action and repent of that action, and it would be a sign that the Holy Spirit's at work in my life. But if I no longer repent, if I no longer turn, I no longer am ashamed, it brings no guilt, no stain on my conscience, and I am perfectly okay in the change of lordship, you better be really afraid. And you better be really afraid for people that you know that willingly undertake this type of lifestyle.
why people get very angry with me when I say there is no such thing as a practicing homosexual Christian. There's no such thing. Because Scripture declares that it is an abomination to God. And so you're forced to make the decision that you're okay in practicing that sin and not being okay with God. That tells me that the work of the Holy Spirit is at very best horrifically weak, or at worst, non-existent. The reason I take that strong stance is because if I'm right, they're going to go to hell. If I'm wrong, the worst thing that can happen is I made them mad. I'd rather make them mad. I would rather cause someone to see sin for what it is and for them not to be caught up in that sin and to look them in the eye and say, Thus says the Lord and take a strong stance on it, remind them of what this passage says. You are willfully choosing to turn your life over to a practice that Scripture declares is the mark that you're an unbeliever. Because if I'm right, they're in deep trouble with the Lord. If I'm wrong, they may not like me. I'll take that chance. I'll take that chance. Now, as I said when I started, this is not because somebody drinks diet drinks. This is not because someone's got a couple extra pounds on them. This is not because somebody went to an R-rated movie. This is not because somebody wakes up one day, they have a bad day, and they scream and yell at somebody. This is pervasive, leadership-driven, lordship-driven, willful disobedience to the leading of the Holy Spirit that causes someone to be perfectly okay in denying the work of the Lord and his word. Make that distinction. It's important. You see, as we look at this passage, if you remember those in the Old Testament who willingly denied the Lord, number 16, it gives you the story of Korah and his followers. They knew what was right, and they chose to do what was wrong, and the net result is they died for it. God has always taken a tough stance on willing disobedience and rebellion, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New. The difference is in the New Testament, you have grace and repentance available to you as a child of God. And so no matter where you go, so long as there's grace that's there available to you and you cling to it and you repent, the turnaround is assured. But when you stop turning around, my Bible says you're in trouble. When you stop making the turn, when you stop hearing the voice of the Lord, when you're perfectly okay, you're meshed in sin, when you can willingly continue in something for the rest of your days, you're in trouble. The good news is the same salvation that you had at the beginning is still available as long as you have breath. But it gets harder the longer you turn your back. 
That's why people that have gone to church and heard the word of the Lord and they've had the gospel presented to them and they have denied the Lord, rarely do they make that turn because your heart becomes hard. And eventually God says, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you and I'll harden your heart further. That's why Christians should not mess with sin. Amen? Lock it in. We don't like to talk about this stuff. We love to talk about the grace of God. We love to talk about faith. And praise God, this is actually leading to the wonderful chapter, chapter 11 on faith. But he's setting the stage so that we understand grace was free, but it wasn't cheap. We understand that God's grace is available to all who will believe. It is a free gift to believe by faith. But if you have that faith, and if you are a child of grace, then your life should be marked by the change that occurs from someone who knows the Lord. It should not be as it once was. Verse 28, For anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And so it begins to give the case here what's being spoken of. The Old Testament way was, It only took two witnesses to say, yeah, I saw that guy over there picking up sticks on Sabbath. That's it. If God killed people in the Old Testament for picking up sticks on Saturday, how much more severe do you think it is for us to trample grace? Because they had to work for it then, amen? We've covered the Old Testament law. We've covered the Old Testament sacrifices and the temple and all those kind of things. Think about it for a second. The New Testament, the New Covenant, abolished the Old Testament. The Old Testament was insufficient. But God said, I'm not playing. You're an adulterer. Death. You kill someone else's animals. You don't remunerate him for them. Death. Your children are disobedient? Stone them. I mean, the Old Testament was harsh. It was horrible. Don't you think he would owe some of those Old Testament saints an apology if all of a sudden grace became cheap? If all of a sudden grace didn't really mean anything? It was a free gift and we can spit on it? You can't spit on grace. Do you need to be perfect? No. Praise God. Do you need to be conscious? Absolutely. Do you need to to listen to the word of the Lord? And when you know it, do it. Yes, you do. It's required of us to live holy lives. There's grace for the weakness. But grace for rebellion? It's not really taught in Scripture. Verse 29, think of how much more, in light of the fact that in Moses' day, you died for stuff. Think how much more terrible the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant as if it were common or unholy. Such people have insulted and enraged the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to his people. You see, the denial of the finished work of Jesus Christ, which is the principal job of the Holy Spirit here on this earth, the conviction that brings salvation, to deny those things 
is eternally fatal. It brings about eternal death and damnation. That's why we simply need to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. But also to simply not believe leaves you damned. So if it's that simple, which it is, praise God, if it's that simple, how do you think God feels? When people know the truth, they've received the truth, they may have walked in the truth for a while, they have tasted, as we saw in chapter 6, of the good fruits of repentance, they know the things that, that, that salvation in essence brings into your life, how do you think God is going to respond to that? And I say to you, not very kindly. It's a dangerous place to be. And as I share this with you, and I recognize I'm talking to Christians, I recognize I'm also talking to the church. This is one of those passages of Scripture. When you have someone who wants to persist in sin, you have someone who just says, you know what, I don't care what Scripture says. Uh, The whole work of the Holy Spirit, I don't even know that it exists in the world. You know, I'm just about the words of Jesus. I've had those people. Well, I only re- I, the only words in the Bible that I believe are the red letters. There, there is actually a group of people in this country called the Jesus-only cult. And they basically only believe in the words of Jesus. Unfortunately, that still leaves them damned. But the bottom line is... They have a tendency to look at sin in a very light manner. Like it's okay. I can lie. I can cheat. I can steal. I can be an adulterer, an adulteress, a fornicator, an idolater, whatever. God didn't mean any of those things. Yes, he did. The difference is, under grace, you don't die for him. Aren't you glad of that? Imagine every Sunday morning... Can I have all the adulterers stand up, please? Because we're going to have a stoning after church. Can I have the drunkards? Drunkards next. And then we get down to the people who gathered sticks on Saturday, and we'd kill them too. There'd be nobody left. There wouldn't be a single person left in a church. We'd all stone a bunch of people, and then we'd have to stone each other. Hopefully we'd all die from it. There wouldn't be anybody left. Praise God for grace. So if we've been freed from that, because that was the Old Covenant, we've been freed from that under the New Covenant, God's not going to take lightly just trampling on that. He said, it used to be really hard. It's now, in essence, really easy. doesn't mean that it's not difficult to forsake things that, that have gripped you. But it does mean it's a lot better than facing the death penalty for gathering sticks on Saturday. Amen? It's a whole bunch better. Notice three things here. They have trampled on the Son of God. The the word that's translated there actually says trampled underfoot. It means to lay low and stomp on. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever thought this through. But what's being talked about, because it's in the context of the Son of God, it's in reference to the finished work of the cross. It's you take Jesus off the cross and stomp on him. You take Jesus off the cross, he's died for your sins, and you use him as something as a doormat. I'm kind of guessing that's pretty serious. 
And I'm really certain God's not going to take very kindly to that. Because when he said it's finished, the, t- the, the veil was torn. Remember what we've already seen? The old covenant's been replaced. You don't need blood of bulls and goats anymore. You don't have to worry about the Day of Atonement. None of those things are, are in place anymore. It's just God's grace that saves you, and you can go in and receive mercy anytime you want it. You can draw near to the Lord. Remember what we just saw? Draw near to the Lord. You can do that. Nah, I don't want to. Take that. It's a pretty scary passage. Second thing treated the blood of the covenant as if it were common or unholy. It means defiled. It is to say the blood wasn't enough. It's to say, eh, maybe you should die again. Maybe you should put him on the cross again. You know, after all, I need to do this right now. It's my sin. I'm entitled to do this. And next week you can crucify Jesus again. Because the other blood wasn't good enough. Not for me. See how strong this passage is? Third thing. Also not good. Insulted and enraged the Holy Spirit. You may have in your Bible the Spirit of Grace. And that really is a wonderful translation. It's it's the Holy Spirit that does that. But it's the Spirit of Grace. When Jesus died on Calvary's cross, he offered the spirit of grace. He said, I'm going to give you my unmerited favor by me dying in your place. It's to say, your grace isn't good enough. Your body wasn't enough. Your blood wasn't enough. And your grace is not enough. Not for me. I'm going to keep doing whatever I want to do. I would say to you, that were I God, I would be really enraged. And I would say that I would probably not have a lot of mercy at that point in time. Bear in mind, this is willful. This is to say, with everything within you, that wasn't enough for me. Do it again. Very few places in our Bible do we find no chance for recovery. But this is one of them. And that must mean it's really, 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 really serious. There's only three in the entire Bible. You've already seen one in chapter 6. That's how serious it is to trample on the grace of God. That's how serious it is for your friends. They're saying, you know, I don't care what the Bible says. I know I made a vow to God, but I'm not keeping it. You need to warn them. Now, are they necessarily unsaved? Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. Now, I don't believe that's what the Bible says. But it's close enough you should be scared to death. It's close enough that you should be eternally worried. It's a place that if you get there, you should be going, Dear God in heaven, help me to repent. Help me to to forsake my sin. I'm going to fall on my face before a holy God. Lord, save me, because I've been an idiot. Not 
Forget it, God. I don't care. I don't even want to hear from you anymore. I'm done. Be careful. We go through spiritual storms, and again, please keep this in context. Please keep it in context. Willful, pervasive denial of every bit of the finished work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. This isn't somebody who stole a car. This isn't somebody who snorted crack. This is not somebody who's fallen in sexual sin. This is somebody who's done those things, done them again, done them again, has made a lifestyle out of them, and they refuse to repent. Verse 30, For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again the Lord who says, The Lord will judge his people. For it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrible thing to trample on Jesus. It is a horrible thing to get to that place in your life to where you don't care what God thinks. You don't care what God might do. You no longer are listening to the Holy Spirit. And so when those things come up in anyone's life, it is time to pull out this passage of Scripture and show them what it says. Because in doing so, you're reminding them of who God is. And He doesn't play. Two of these lines are actually quoted from Moses' farewell song there in Deuteronomy chapter 32. That's where it comes from. It's mine to avenge, and I will repay, for the Lord is the judge of His people. These Quotations remind us of who actually makes the call. Our world is filled with people who believe they can write their own morality. Our world is filled with people who believe they have no responsibility to God. Our world is filled with people who believe in a sliding scale of justice. Our world is filled with people that does not, do not, and will not believe in absolutes. And yet Scripture is filled with absolutes. And if you are a child of God, your life is bounded by absolutes. Doesn't mean that there isn't grace for failure, but it does mean you don't get to set the rules. God does. And He repays. That's why when someone asks the question, you know, well, can you sin and be saved? The answer is yes. But the question is, how do you really know that you're saved if you're willingly sinning? How do you know? Where's that, where's that line? Where do you think, how hard do you think your heart has to get before it gets too hard? When I think of those things, it scares me to death. Now, praise the Lord, because of how I know my God responds to my repentance and because constantly there is a check in my spirit about those things, I know that I'm good with God. But when I stop having that, when I don't care, 
When that voice, that still small voice, stops speaking, that silence ought to be deafening. Falling into God's hands will be a dreadful experience, no matter who that is, whether that's someone who was saved and isn't, or that's someone who's never saved, as I said, it doesn't matter. You don't want to be there. Verse 32, and I'm reading again from the New Living Translation, don't ever forget those early days when you first learned about Christ. You remember those days? That's what you thought about almost all day long. It's like, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Do you remember those days? That's what's in view here. I can remember as if it were yesterday when I gave my life to Christ. It's one of the most vivid memories I have of my childhood. Don't ever forget those early days when you first learned about Christ. And remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. When I gave my life to Jesus, my paradigm shifted. All of a sudden, the friends I used to have, they want to be around no Jesus freak. I didn't want to be anywhere near Jesus freak. I drug out that big old huge King James Bible. They're like, oh, it's one of those. There was a price to pay. Family of God, as long as you walk with the Lord, there's always going to be a price to pay. It gets to be a different price as you get older and as you, the longer you walk with Jesus. But there's always a price to pay for walking with the Lord. It's one of the things that we take willingly. After this harsh warning, we kind of need to, to get a little help, a little breath of life, and this begins to be a breath of life to us and, and some encouragement. You see, you can look at somebody, and here's why this is here. You can look at somebody, if you believe that they were saved, and perhaps they're not now, or if you know that they were saved and they're not walking with the Lord again, it doesn't matter which one of those two places. Look at them in the eye. Remember when you first got saved? Tell me that wasn't real. Tell me that wasn't real. You get back to the heart. Tell me that wasn't real. I knew you before you got saved. Your life changed. What's happened? And all of a sudden, begins to tug at their heart. And, and this, what it says there, it meant terrible suffering. It actually means to endure a great struggle. Remember when you first got saved? How the enemy immediately come back, comes back at your mind, ah, that wasn't real. You know, that's just the dumbest thing you've ever, you just, they were just playing just as I am. Why did you go down to the front of the church? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And the enemy just whispers those things in your ear. And you remember thinking those thoughts, oh, maybe he was right. And then all of a sudden the Lord brings you confirmation, oh no, it was real. There's always been a struggle. You're always going to have a bit of struggle. But the Lord's greater than the struggle. As a pastor, I tell you openly, there have been times when I have doubted my own salvation. There have been times. The enemy comes in as a flood, begins to beat on you, slaps you around. You put yourself in a situation or two that you shouldn't be in. That sin is weighing heavy on your shoulders. 
you're looking at those things going, oh, I don't know. You realize the fact that you even cared is a sure sign that you're saved? The fact that it even mattered to you is a sign that you do have the Holy Spirit in you. Thank you, Jesus. You may be miserable. You're supposed to be. God leaves you very uncomfortable in that situation because you're not right with Him. And if you're not right with Him, whether you were saved and aren't, or whether you're not saved at all, the net result is you're supposed to repent. Call on the name of the Lord. Ask for forgiveness of sin. And He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So the next breath you take is a redeemed breath. Hallelujah. Verse 33. And sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Isn't it crazy sometimes in your life when you're really walking with the Lord and you, you take that abuse? You know, you stand in the gap, and sometimes you're there with other people who are standing in the gap. You can look back on those times and you go, you know what, that was real. I know that was real. There was nothing in it for you. There was nothing in it for me. We've all gone through those things. I don't care if you're a brand new believer or a senior saint. We've all had that experience in our life. If you're genuinely here and you're a child of God, you can remember things like this in your life. You know what it was like. It was real. It wasn't fake. You sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. When you go through life, and as Paul said, I suffer the loss of all things for the excellency of Christ. When you do that, I'm not talking about just, you know, everybody goes home and sells everything they own. Talking about the thing, there are things in this life that you miss out on. I don't get invited to any more wild parties. I just don't. People know better than invite me because I'm a killjoy. That's why I haven't been to a high school reunion. I went to I think we went to the 20th, and I haven't been back since. That would have been like 20 years ago. I got there and I'm like, man, I am like this is like so not me. This is not who I am. I felt uncomfortable. I, Rory, I'm Jeff Gill. I'm a pastor. It's just like all of a sudden their drink goes behind their back, you know. They're like They were telling some filthy story that you partially overheard as you walked up, and they're like, oh, God bless you. Maybe you didn't lose your house or lose your car or lose anything. But you probably lost some friends. You probably have some family members that don't really like you anymore. That's why Jesus said, unless you're willing to hate your father and mother. He wasn't talking about you willingly hating them. He's talking about what happens to you when you really are sold out for Christ. You're going to have people that just no longer want to be around you. It hurts. It causes pain. But it's a sign that you knew the Lord. So imagine when you're okay with returning to that vomit. Imagine that it doesn't matter to you the sacrifice that the Lord made. Imagine that you're willing to give up and go back. 
you're supposed to be really worried. It's supposed to cause you to go, oh, no, I can't do that. We all have our little struggles. And I want to really encourage you. The fact that we have the struggles is a good thing. Don't let the struggles themselves be a detriment to your spiritual walk. The fact that you're actually struggling with it and you're not just jumping into it is a good thing. That all of a sudden you're like, man, well, you know, I kind of think, you know, maybe I, and you, I know, we're all bipolar, every last one of us. Flesh and spirit, they're at each other, banging heads. When you're not arguing with yourself occasionally about whether it's right or wrong, you probably need to be concerned. Because you've either become perfect and you're still here on earth, not good, or the Holy Spirit's not at work in you anymore, also not good. You need to be concerned. There's supposed to be a little conflict going on because you're still flesh and spirit. The old man's still there. You've been beating away on him. You've been doing everything you can to kill him. But he's not dead. Totally. Will be someday. That's guaranteed in Christ. So when you look at your life, there was an old you and a new you. Remember what the old you was like. You can see that there's been a change. I look at my life, and if nobody else sees it, I can go, thank you, Jesus. Praise God. I can go, thank you, Jesus. Because I know what I used to be like. I know how I used to talk. I know what I used to do. I know what I used to think. I know that I had no conviction whatsoever. None of much of my life. And I know now I do. I know it's real. So I'm not worried. I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm going to heaven. Because if it's by works that we're saved, we're all dead. None of us will be saved. Some of us will be a little bit more undirty than the others, but we'll all be dirty. You see, in those times of persecution... The simple fact that you lived your life for Christ, as imperfect as it was, as imperfect as it was, as imperfect as it may have been today. I think a vast majority of Christians on this earth are what I like to call roller coaster Christians. Really high, wee, oh no, the bottom hits. But praise God, there's another hill. Praise the Lord, there's another up. We need to have a long-term outlook on these things. And the awesome thing is, is when you have that long-term outlook, it kind of evens everything out. You ever wondered why mutual funds don't send you a check every day? It's because one day they'd send you a check, the next day they'd come knocking on your door and take it all back. It's called averaging. So you get an averaged annual return. Because if they handed you a check one day, they'd have to take it back the next day. It's the same thing spiritually. There are days when you're probably accumulating some positive things for the kingdom. And there are days when not so much. But the good news is grace levels it all out. The highs aren't really yours anyway. God did those. And the lows, you're covered under the blood of Christ. 
those failures he's more than sufficient to take care of. He evens it all out. It's a long-term outlook. You're looking at retirement, which is heaven. You're looking at the last day going, man, I'm going to make it. And it begins to now wrap this up. Therefore, having said those hard things, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't cast it away. Don't fret over it. If there's something that needs to change, change it. If there's something that needs to be fixed, fix it. If there's an issue that doesn't meet God's standard, change to where it does. It's simple. It's not hard. And the moment you make that turn, guess what gets restored? Your assurance and your confidence. The moment I turn and go the right way, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. My confidence returns. But as long as I keep going the wrong way, I've got no confidence. Remember I shared with you, if you want to have assurance, do what the Lord says. If you want to have his blessings, be obedient to the Lord. You cannot separate those things out. You can't have assurance while doing your own thing. You can't have blessings while doing your own thing. You have assurance and blessings by doing things God's way. And so it says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence. It says, do you know what that means? Hear me well. How can you cast away something? You have to already have it. Amen? You can't cast it away if it's not in your hands. You can only cast it away if you've already got it. So if you already have it, you have to throw it away, is what he's saying. Don't do that. That's, that's not... No. A thousand times no. It has great reward. Why? Because when I walk in that confidence, when, when I lay hold of those promises and I do them, I'm preparing, in essence, myself for heaven. I'm getting ready for the day of the Lord. If He comes and takes me home, or if He takes all of us home, I'm more ready than I was the day before. I'm, in essence, prepping for eternity. I'm getting ready. You know how when you go on vacation, you put all the stuff out in the garage, and you go through it piece by piece. It's like, okay, got the stove, I got the tent, got the sleeping bag. Got 17,000 fishing lures. I got. And start going through it. How confident would you be of your vacation if you took all that stuff and threw it in a dumpster? Not very, amen? You take all the things that you work so hard on, all those things that are Christ in you, your hope of glory, and you gather them all up and you throw them away. You're not going to be very confident of your vacation time, are you? Same thing's true spiritually. All those things have happened and you, you've worked all this time in your life to be well-pleasing to God and all of a sudden you throw them away. You're not going to have much confidence. We need to be confident. We need to cling to those things. We need to allow the Lord to work in us. Hardships are going to come and go. The Lord has a way for us to Handle those things. Verse 36, for you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, notice this, you need to persevere. Persevering is hard work, okay? It's not easy. You're going to be tempted. 
You need to pass that temptation. You're going to have trials. You need to get through the trial. We need to persevere as Christians. We don't teach much on this. Amen? If I did a six-part series on persevering, there would be nobody here. I wouldn't even come to hear me. Not a popular subject. But you need the New Living, or the New International says, to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, when you have done, not if you have done, when you have, not if, when you have done the will of God, so you've listened to his word, you've listened to the Holy Spirit, you understood what the word says, you went ahead and did it, your life has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, it's now his, it's no longer he, you who live, but he who lives in you. All those things, when you've done the will of God, and you said, Lord, nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. When you live that way, you will receive what he's promised. You see, when you don't do the will of God, you have no idea what he's promised. You walk around in uncertainty and insecurity and lack of assurance, and you're going, I don't know. You have to do the will of God in order to have that assurance. The best way that we can, as, as God's people, have the greatest life now is to do exactly what he tells us to do, as best as we possibly can. And as we do that, we walk around in total assurance that God's at work in us. But every time I'm rebellious, that little seed of doubt gets planted. Amen? Because that's where it comes from. Amen? It's okay. You can say Amen. Because that's what happens. When you willingly sin against God, a seed of doubt gets planted in your mind. That's what happens. You're going, well, I don't know. What do you think happens if you plant two or three more? They get together and make a doubt club. And then before you know it, there's a big membership in the doubt club in your life because you're no longer doing the will of God. And all you can think about is, man, there's a whole lot of people in the doubt club. And all of a sudden you're sitting there going, well, I don't know. God wants you to receive the promise. He wants you to walk in it now in fullness. Times of trial serve to sift us. They prepare us. The testing of your faith, James says, produces patience. And patience, when it has has its perfect work, it's completed in you. It leaves you complete and lacking zip, nada, nothing. So going through those trials strengthens your faith. Chapter 11 is all about faith. So this is setting the stage for chapter 11. Don't walk in rebellion to God. Do the will of the Lord. Be very afraid if you're very comfortable in sin. If sin doesn't bother you, you are in trouble. You're already in trouble. But if it does bother you, do the will of the Lord. Whatever the will of the Lord is. So when people say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't speak to that specifically. But you know what? About 100% of the time when I talk to people, they already know what to do. They already have the answer. Holy Spirit's spoken to them. They know they're not supposed to be doing what they're doing, and they're supposed to do something else. But they don't want to do the will of the Lord, so they do not have assurance, and they're walking in utter lack of confidence of the work of Christ in their life. Persistence doesn't mean you merit salvation. It simply provides assurance of that salvation. Do you understand the difference? You're not earning it. It just gives you a sense that you're on the right path. 
You know, when you get on the freeway and you start driving, if you've ever driven through a metropolitan city, you know how the freeway overhead signs, the, the dumbest people on earth must plan those things. Because about 10 miles out, it says, get in the right lane. So for 10 miles, you're in the merging lane on the freeway going two miles an hour while everybody's getting on and off. And then you ever notice how in the last, like, half a mile, there's like 10 of those signs. It says you need to be in lane two, lane three, you know, don't be in this lane. And then all of a sudden there's some other thing that happens, and you're supposed to get out of that lane and then get back into it. That's kind of the way life is. You get a little bit of warning. You need to be in this lane. And then as you get down to the end, there's a little bit of jockeying around. You've got to kind of move with the flow of how life is going. And those trials come and go, and ultimately the write-off ramp happens in heaven. Amen? You may get messed up. Good thing is you can turn around, go down to another off-ramp, turn around, come back, and get off on the right one. That's the way God works. But you've got to be listening, and you've got to do the will of the Lord. Now, us knucklehead guys, nah, I know where I'm going, honey. And before you know it, we're in like another city. And we get to repeat the whole process completely again from the other direction. You don't want to do that because you have no assurance of where you're going. You're going to get to that same intersection and go, man, now it's the other way around. I don't know whether to turn right or turn left, and you get messed up. You need to pay attention to the signs when you've done the will of God. If it says you need to be in the third lane, be in the third lane. If you need to be in the second lane, be in the second lane. If you need to take the off-ramp, take the off-ramp. You don't have a better plan than God. He's the one who put the signs up. And yet, verse 37 says, For a little while he who is coming will come and will not tarry. And notice what it says, and this sets us up for chapter 11. Now the just shall live by faith. The just live by faith. We who are justified, it says, live by faith. We who've had the blood of the Lamb applied to us and we're going to heaven, live by faith. I don't, I don't have in my office a little certificate that says Jeff's going to heaven. Okay, I just want you to know that. I don't have anything signed by anybody that says, you know, for decades, seen you serving Jesus, so I know you're going to heaven. I don't have one of those things. I have to live by faith just like you do. I have to trust God. The more I do what his word says, the more assurance I have. The more I'm comfortable just walking with Jesus. Not perfect, but you know what? I'm good with it. God, you must know what you're doing. You got me this far. I was a knucklehead before. I know I'm a little less of a knucklehead now. I'm good. The just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, Notice what it says. Kind of repeats the warning. My soul has no pleasure in him. To someone who won't walk by faith, won't continue in faith, won't persevere and, and just keep going with the Lord. And I say, you know what? I'm going back to Sodom. I'm going back to the vomit. I don't really care for this Jesus thing anymore. God says, my soul takes no pleasure in that person. Why? Because their eternal destiny is not a good thing. In essence, God will work out His plans. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Again, it repeats it. It's just so clear. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. 
but we are those who believe and are saved. It's a statement. We believe, we're saved. We do the will of the Lord, we're saved. I have assurance because I'm doing it. I'm saved. I have confidence because my life is marked by the work of the Spirit. I'm saved. You see, it ends with that confidence of a life that's lived by faith. It's not some class you went to. It's not a church you belong to. It's not a document you have. It's not a series of gold stars on your lapel. You know, I went to church 4,815 times, so I'm going to heaven. It's I believed, and because I believed, if you believe something, you act on it. Amen? If I believe something, I am forced by the essence of belief to act on it as truth. Otherwise, you don't believe it. It's very simple. What you believe, you must act on. Even if that's just to mentally understand it, you've still acted on it. So to believe is to count it as truth and to do it. It says, to those who believe, they are saved. So believing produces action because it's come from the truth of what God's will is doing in your life. If you don't have that, your assurance is not so high. Good news is, all you got to do is turn around. Go the other way. Do what God says. And he will begin to bury the past with the goodness of the future. And before you know it, you're going to be golden. Amen? Abide in the vine. That's all it says. Abide in him, he and us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that work of the Spirit. And Lord, we pray that we would have boldness if we know people who are just wandering. Lord, they're not walking with you. They're in rebellion to your word. Lord, give us the courage to confront. Lord, in love. Lord, as as good soldiers, help us to endure. Help us to walk the walk and talk the talk all at the same time. God, we thank you for your work in this church, in our lives. Pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord. Help us in our weaknesses, our infirmaries. Those things that God needs some extra help, they need to be tended to or propped up. We pray that you'd bless us, God. Thank you for your presence in our lives. Holy Spirit, continue to lead us and guide us and direct us. We thank you for your love. Lord, help us to never trample on your sacrifice. Help us to always keep your blood as holy. Lord, help us to remember what it cost to win back our lives from damnation. We bless you. We thank you. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. And yes, I'm glad we're done with that chapter.